John chapter 6. Again, I welcome everyone this morning, and I thank you again for all your prayers for yesterday. I pray you would continue to pray for those who I hope and pray heard the gospel. It was, for me, a tremendous blessing because actually the truths that we're looking at in John chapter 6 greatly inspired me to preach the gospel yesterday. It gave me such a confidence in the gospel and at the same time increased my burden for those that were there that I'm sure some knew not Christ. So I ask you to continue praying for those that were there and for the success of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a privilege and an honor. And I left there wanting to go out into the street and just continue preaching the gospel. There's nothing greater than the gospel. Nothing I'd rather preach more than the gospel. And I pray God would increase our burden as a church to take the gospel into the streets and preach to every creature the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I hope and pray these truths found in John chapter 6 would inspire us to do so. John chapter 6, verse 41, The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all they shall be all taught of God. Who? All those whom the Father draws. They shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard, every man. It's amazing. Do you hear the sovereignty of God in these verses? No man can come, but those that have heard, every man will come. The sovereignty of God's election, the sovereignty of God's calling and drawing, its irresistible grace. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Do you, do you hear the authority of the Son of God in regards to the salvation of sinners? It's not a possibility. It's not a chance. It's a certain effectual drawing of the Father to Christ. No man except, and those that do shall come unto me. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd forgive me already. Lord, I'm so greatly humbled by this text, and I feel so enabled, Father, to preach it. May the Spirit of God use me this morning to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. May we as thy children find comfort in these words of Christ. 
Lord, may it rise our worship, our praise, our adoration, that we would truly love you and worship you with all our hearts, our souls, and our minds. Father, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified this morning. I pray that you'd not only inspire our adoration and love for you, but you would humble us in such a way that, Father, we'd feel excited and encouraged to take the gospel out into the street, knowing that when we preach the gospel, those whom the Father draws shall come. Father, I pray that you would be honored and glorified in this mystery this morning that is to us of God's drawing people of the gospel call. Father, I pray you'd be honored and glorified in all that's said and done, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. No man can come unless or except. And when the Father draws, every man shall come. Oh, do you place yourself in this text? Do you see your own salvation in this text? Do you recall your own salvation when the Father drew you to Christ and when you seen and understood your need of Christ, your sins and your wickedness and your vileness before God, and yet you were taught that in Christ is all the salvation and mercy you need as a sinner. Oh, that the Word of God would speak to our hearts this morning and not simply be words upon a page or a cold doctrine that leaves us unmoved and untouched, but that our hearts would be raised to worship God for such a calling. For why me, O Lord? Whether or not the Jews witnessed the miracle of Christ feeding 5,000 or even partook themselves, Scripture is not clear. That they were present as Christ declared Himself to be the bread of life which cometh down from heaven is clearly evident. Yet it also appears that the multitude had lost interest in Christ and had or were dispersing. For if Christ would not fulfill their fleshly desires and satisfactions, then they desired nothing more of Christ. And so it is today, dearly beloved, sinful man has not changed. His interest or curiosity concerning the things of God and true religion is only satisfied as long as his fleshly desires and lusts are fulfilled. You know how quickly they lose interest when they realize that such meat perishes. Remove the music, remove the entertainment, remove all those fleshy things, the programs in most churches, and you'll lose the interest of most people. Take away the music and the entertainment and the movies and the drama and all the worldly methods and preach merely the Word of God. And you'll find a multitude disinterested in Christ. Sinful man is not changed. Oh, beloved, this was a lot of people. 5,000 men, counting, not counting women and children. So many people, so many people would experience the miracle of Christ, personally experience the feeding of the bread And yet, because he would not continue to satisfy their fleshly lusts, they become disinterested in Christ. Now, 
And yet such things of God must never be trifled with or slighted. For the consequences can be very severe and detrimental. And I believe this is a truth which is not preached enough from the pulpits. There is a blessing of sitting under the preaching of the Word of God. There is a blessing entailed in hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet there is great consequences for those who trifle with it and slight it. Look over in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 and verse 23 to 26. Listen to what Christ says here. He that is not with me is against me. Very clear. There's no riding the fence. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than themselves, himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first of what speaketh our Lord. Our Lord speaketh of a man who professes religion and cleanses himself outwardly, pretends to have it, yet nothing is real. There's no true salvation. The end of that man is worse than the first. Beloved, here's a message which we must integrate into the gospel Yes, it's by the mercy of God that we are saved. And all that come to Christ, all that come to Christ, He will not cast out. But those that hear the gospel, there's a great consequence entailed in those who reject it and slight it. That's why Paul said, Who is sufficient of these things? For the Savior of life unto one and the Savior of death unto other, the gospel shall either save a man or arise up to condemn him forever. Beloved, it is no little offense to God when sinful man slights his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, for the last state of that man will be worse than the first. For the multitude, beloved, in our text, the multitude left with a hunger which would never be filled. Do you realize that? you think that they ever forgot that feeling, that experience of being filled in such a manner? The righteous hunger and thirst for righteousness in our field. You see the paradox in that? Our hunger and thirst is filled in Christ. Yet this multitude left with a hunger that was never fulfilled again. We must, when we preach the gospel, warn those who would reject the gospel, even though we know that God has to draw, we must warn them that rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ brings the greatest consequences upon the souls of men. You say, preacher, that makes no logic, no sense. It must not make sense. It must not make logic. It is truly right and biblical that God holds all men responsible for their own sins. And a warning must be placed in the preaching of the gospel. God commandeth everywhere, every man to repent. He says He's going to come back and destroy those who did not obey the gospel of God. There's a commandment there. There's a warning there. There's an exhortation there. Do not trifle, do not trifle with the things of God. 
It is part of the gospel message. And so we must learn from this multitude. They left with that hunger that was never fulfilled. Peter talks of those, and we'll look at that probably next week, but Peter talks of those who come to a certain knowledge of the truth and then they go back into the world, the pleasures of the world. He said it was better they were never born than to come to the knowledge of the truth. Oh, beloved, I know there's a lot of theologians today that try to logically and reasonably explain those things. And they stand back in amazement and say, no, if we cannot logically bring those things together, if we cannot logically and reasonably explain these things, it cannot be true, but I tell you it is true. God must do the drawing. God must do the one that awakens. God must do the one that makes the first move. He must inspire. He must teach men of Christ. The Holy Spirit must renew us. Faith is a gift of God, and yet God still holds sinful man responsible for his own damnation. And that is a part of the gospel. And it's something that we must not forget. Yet now, as the multitude begins or has already dispersed because they've lost interest in Christ, how many people have I seen over the last 35 or 40 years that began well? They came to church, professed some kind of salvation, and they're all excited about the things of Christ, only later on to lose interest in Christ and go back into the world. The parable of the sower and the seed makes sense here. Beware, dearly beloved, beware. I've come to find out over the years it's not it's not how you begin, it's how you continue and end in Christ. The Bible uses the word endure for a reason. Those that endure shall be end shall be saved. Now the Jews would murmur against Christ. Now that the multitude is dispersing, now the Jews, in verses later on, we find out he's moved from outward to the synagogue. The Jews now murmur against Christ, not for feeding the multitude, nor because the multitude was filled. It's as though they didn't even regard this miracle. I'm sure they heard of it. They heard Christ say he's the bread of heaven which cometh down from heaven. So whether they witnessed it, maybe even partook of it, we know not, but they were there clearly. But now the Jews turn, to, turn on Christ and begin to murmur because Christ declared himself to be that bread which came down from heaven. Some say that where the synagogue was at on the pillars, there was an emblem of a bowl for manna, which is a picture of Exodus when God gave them manna, and Christ used that example in this situation. Christ often used those things that were around him, whether it be a vineyard or anything, but they say he was standing next to that pillar, and there was this emblem of the manna and bread which God fed the people in Egypt and Christ used, or in Exodus, and Christ used that to emphasize him being the bread which cometh down from heaven. Oh, this enraged Jews. Who is this man? Is this not Jesus? The son of Joseph? A mere carpenter? 
whose father and mother, we know his father and mother, they're a nobody, they're a nothing. How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? You know, it's always amazed me over the last 30 years as a pastor and even today, how the truths of God could have such a diverse reaction upon men. It's amazing. The multitude, having been filled, were merely inquisitive and curious. Nothing more. Give us more of this bread. Are you not going to give it to us? Okay, we'll see you later. And they disperse. They were merely curious, inquisitive. The Jews, they murmured and complained about the words of Christ. Why are you saying you're coming down from heaven? And the apostate disciples later on cried, this is a hard saying, who can hear it and walk no more with Christ? Three different groups of people, three different reactions. It's amazed me, always amazed me, how the Word of God has such a diverse effect upon people. I've preached in churches and in my own church in Germany it's hard to explain, but when you're preaching the countenance of the people, um, they think that they're in a multitude and they're not seen, but you'd be surprised how the preacher notices the faces after so many years and the countenance. And I've seen oftentimes during preaching men and women under severe conviction in their countenance, which has changed, while others who sit right behind them or next to them sit and look as though they're bored and not even listening to what's being said, and the others are being moved by the Spirit of God. It's always amazed me how God severally moves amongst people. The multitude was inquisitive. The Jews were enraged. The apostate disciples said, this is too hard. Oh, the sovereignty of God. Oh, the effects of God's Word upon a multitude. Jesus answered and said unto them, Murmur not amongst yourselves. No man can come to me. You notice, just like the multitude, he doesn't satisfy their curiosity. He doesn't answer their question. They came and they said, remember, they said um, that uh, that they wanted, he said, Rabbi, where did you come? And he immediately says, no, you're seeking me for the wrong reason. He doesn't even answer their question. Here with the Jews, he does the same thing. They say, why does he say he's the bread that cometh down from heaven? Christ doesn't even answer their question. He comes directly to the problem. He directs immediately their attention to the problem. You can't come to me. You said, who is this Jesus? We know Joseph, his mother. Let me tell you why you don't know, why you don't understand. I'm not going to try to explain to you what I just said about me being the bread of heaven. I'm going to tell you what the problem is. You can't know me. No man, he says in verse 44. Earlier with the multitude, Christ declared, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. In verse 37, he says, all that the Father giveth me. Yet now Christ would clarify this divine truth more precisely so that there might be no misunderstanding. He wants these Jews, these religious hypocrites to understand, no man can come unto me except the Father drive. No man. You question who I am and why I said what I said. You do that because you don't know me. And that without the Father's drawing, there can be no coming to Christ. And therefore, no everlasting life. Of 
Beloved, this answers the age-old question. What is the origin? Listen to me. What is the origin, the source, the beginning of man's salvation? Is it in man or God? That's a question man has troubled himself with for thousands of years. Is salvation of the Lord or is it of man? Is it man to save himself? Does he share in any part the saving of his soul? Or is the salvation of the Lord? And sinful man is merely passive until taught of the Father to come to Christ. This question has confused and confounded men down through the ages. And even to this day, there's heated debates about the origin of man's salvation. Does man have anything in himself, sinful fallen man, does he have anything in himself that merits salvation? Is there anything in him that even helps him to partake in the saving of his soul? Or is he totally blind and dead in sin? No man. Christ is clear. No man can come to me. He makes it clear. These words of Christ prove that not only that the utter impossibility of any man coming to Christ on his own, no man can come to me except unless. But beloved, in these words he also denounces and condemns any man who might foolishly believe he has the power and ability in himself to do so. There's a twofold truth in this. He proves the utter impossibility, but he denounces and he condemns any man who would try. No man can come to me. That's not merely a statement. That's a proclamation. And it's a declaration. He condemns any man that would think he has the ability to come to him. Look over in John chapter 10. In this same wonderful... Gospel, John chapter 10. Look in verse 1. Again, our Lord speaks, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. He's referring to salvation. Listen what he says. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Watch this. To him the porter openeth. Who's the porter? Well, who do you think the porter is? And the sheep hears his voice. He's referring to himself and the Father. The porter openeth. Who openeth the understanding? Who openeth the heart? Who openeth the mind? Who teaches? The Father. Listen to these words. To him the porter opens, the sheep hears his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. Listen to that. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. What's Christ speaking about? He's speaking about salvation. The only way that you can get in is when the porter opens up, gives you understanding, and then you follow the shepherd. 
that all those that try to climb up another way, and oh, beloved, there are many who try to climb up other ways. Christ said they're merely thieves and robbers. They try to climb up through their own good works. They try to climb up through their own merits. They're thinking there's something in themselves that earned them salvation. And Christ said, you're a thief and a robber. The porter openeth and the sheep hear his voice. They shall be taught of God. The sheep hear his voice. How can they hear his voice? They're taught of God. And he calleth. There's the drawing. The Father draweth. He calleth. His own sheep by name and leadeth them out. There's the everlasting life. The same concept here in chapter 10 is in 6. You have the teaching of God the Father. You have the drawing of God the Father. And you have the everlasting life. And how is that possible? Because the porter opened it up and they follow the sheep, follow the shepherd because they know his voice. Why? Because they've been taught of God. Oh, man hates this doctrine. Let me have something to do with my own salvation. Yes, man fell in the garden. Yes, Adam fell into sin. But not everything fell. He still had the choice. He still had the ability to choose. And when the Lord said, of the day you eat the fruit, you'll die, Adam lived on after eating the fruit quite a while. What died? Well, I think we all understand that from Romans chapter 3 and other passages of Scripture. He died spiritually. There's none that seeketh God. There's none that doeth good. None. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Total depravity means nothing good. Nothing but sin. Unable. Unable to understand anything spiritually without God. Are you, are you following the train of thought in your own salvation in this? I hope you are, because this is hopefully what will excite and inspire us to worship God even more. You see, uh, it was not of your own. It was not of yourself. It was not of anything you did. It was God. If you're saved this morning and know Christ, and you hear His voice, it's because God sovereignly drew you and taught you and showed you the things of Christ not of any merit of our own and here is the most astounding and overwhelming thought that should cause us to praise him throughout eternity it was for his own free choice and will nothing more Try to find out some reason why God would open your eyes and my eyes. Try to find out some reason that God would show us favor and mercy. There's none except God himself. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Oh, beloved, the doctrine of divine election humbles humbles us and exalts Christ to the highest glory. Over John chapter 1, another well-known passage of Scripture, John chapter 1, no man can come unto me except unless the Father draw him. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, 
Speaking of Christ, he came under his own, his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Oh, there it is, preacher. They received him. To many that received him, there is man's merit. No, follow the verse. Keep it in context. Verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's how they came. John clearly explains that. But, oh, but as many received him to them, give him power to become the sons of God. Oh, if we could just meditate upon that one verse. Power to become the sons of God. Why? Because he had to lift us out of the power of Satan and sin and depravity under the power of his own son. I'm telling you, heaven is taken by storm and the violent take it with vengeance. It was a sovereign power that lifted us up out of depravity and sin and out of the snares of Satan and transported us, transported us into the kingdom of His dear Son. It took sovereign power to do that. No man is able to do that of his own. He's too engulfed in sin. He's too depraved. He's too blind and ignorant. He must be taught of God. Who is this Jesus? They said, Christ said, you don't know me because Father has not drawn you. You've not been taught of God. You're in your ignorance and you're in your blindness. Unless God teaches you, you cannot come to Christ. <laughs> but if He teaches you, you will come to Christ. We all know about Romans chapter 9. But for our text's sake, let's read it again. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 and verse 13. That is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it's not of him that willeth, there it is again, nor him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Sounds like Christ. No man can come unto me. Who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, What hast thou made thou made us meet us? <clears throat> Hath not the potter power over the clay or the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? It could be the Jews who were murmuring, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Watch this, even us whom he hath called. You see there? He's called. No man. No exception. 
No man can come unto me unless the Father draweth him. One might say, what about passages of Scripture like Matthew chapter 11, 28, and 30? Let's read that together and listen to the words of Christ. Matthew 11, very familiar passage of Scripture. Listen to this. Here's Christ. Come unto me. Well, there it is. No, don't stop there. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Does that mean people that are tired and weary? Listen to me. After one week of work, I'm tired and weary. It's, he's not talking about a fleshly labor and weariness. He's talking about those that are labor and heavy laden under a conviction of sin. Why are they, why are they laboring and heavy laden? Because the Father is teaching them. He's not speaking to every man. He's speaking to those particularly who are, he says here, labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn, there it is, learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest in your souls. You see, he's talking spiritually. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is he doing? The invitation. The invitation is to those who are... <laughs> laboring and heavy laden. The invitation is those who have been taught of the Father. The invitation is those to whom the Father has drawn to Christ. And all those that come unto me, I shall in no wise cast out. All those that come unto me, come unto me. Same wording. The calling or invitation is not to all men, but clearly to those who labor. Taught of God, conviction of sin. Hmm. You remember a passage in John chapter 7 where our Lord cried out, If any man thirst, let him come unto me. There's that word again. All that come unto me, let him come unto me and drink. Who's he speaking to? Oh, the invitation goes out to everybody. But it's distinctly to those who thirst. He said he stood up in the multitude during the feast. He stood up and cried, all ye, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me. He's speaking to those whom the Father's taught. This is the gospel. You get out and you preach the gospel to every creature. And God calls out His own individually. It's not up to the preacher to choose who and when are called. He preaches the word to every creature. He beseeches men everywhere to repent and turn to God. Every creature. For God has so sovereignly ordained this to be the means of His calling in His people. So we preach to the gospel. We preach the gospel to every man who maketh men to thirst but God. Now oh, I hear the hyper-Calvinist, if you want to use terminology, whatever they might call themselves, I hear them say, I make no invitation because of the doctrine of election. Now, then I say, you know not the doctrine of election. How dare you make an invitation? It defies the doctrine of election. No, no. The doctrine of election is entailed in the invitation. 
How does God draw men? Our Lord said, no man come unto me unless the Father draw him. That's what he said. Well, the verse following, verse 45, explains that. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father, cometh unto me. Look at that. Look at that. Listen to that. Every man. He says, no man shall come, but those that are taught of God, every one of them shall call, shall come. Did he not say earlier, I'll no wise cast them out. I'll not lose one. Look at the assurance of the believer. The eternal security of the believer is a biblical truth based on God's sovereign election, not on our choosing God, but on God electing us and choosing us and drawing us and giving us a heart to know God. It's God who keeps us. I and my Father are one, he said in John chapter 10, and no man shall pluck us out of the Father's hand, not even yourself. Why? Because you're secure in God's divine sovereign election. And every man, every man, every man, therefore that hath heard <laughs> and hath learned of the Father, they come unto me. When we was in Germany preaching for 14 years on the streets, beloved, we were preaching to hardcore drug addicts, not pot smokers. I mean heroin addicts. Sometimes they would OD right in front of us while we're preaching. Needles laying everywhere. The confidence we had in the gospel was not in them knowing what to choose. The confidence was knowing that God is sovereign, and regardless of how far their mind might be gone, God can draw them and teach them to Christ. Sometimes we act as though the gospel is weak without us somehow trying to implement that, man, you have to do something. Fourteen years, every Saturday, in snow, in rain. And this was our confidence in the gospel. This was my confidence yesterday when I stood before that small group and here's death plainly before their eyes. And give me confidence to say, Betty would not ask you, do you know Christ? She would say, you must know Christ. That's the confidence of the gospel. I know it sounds, and hypers get mad at that, it sounds very Arminian, but that's the gospel. Christ said it himself, if any man thirst, and he said it to the crowd. He teaches them. How does He teach them? Through the preaching of the Gospel, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through renewing of the heart and mind, all a sovereign and always effectual calling. That's how God teaches. Let me show you something real quick as we wind this down in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me show you something Paul says here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now listen to what he says here. It's very important because I believe the preaching of the Gospel is today despised and rejected and belittled and misunderstood preaching of itself. But Second Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 20. Well, verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us, listen to it, committed unto us, the preachers, committed unto us the word of reconciliation. He's given it unto his preachers. 
You wonder why there's so many churches without preachers? It's a sign of God's judgment upon His people. He begins to remove His oracles. He begins to remove those who would preach. That's a sign of God's judgment upon a nation. His prophets, His preachers are silenced. 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ said, be ye reconciled to God. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Now watch then. Verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1. We then as workers together with Him. With who? With God. Preachers are workers together with God. Listen to this. Beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I secured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. How does God teach sinners? It's through the preaching of God's word through his preachers. Paul understood the severity, the importance, the overwhelming responsibility of that when he says, I am the least of all apostles and the least of all saints and not worthy. Beloved, there is coming a time, and I believe now is, when God's people will have to search far and wide for the preaching of God's word. But God teaches through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. How shall they hear? How shall they believe if they're not sent? And how shall they be sent without being a preacher? How shall they work? I'm telling you, this is a judgment of God upon a nation when the pulpits have been silenced and all you have is religious heresy and false doctrine. Oh, beloved, may we ever seek God's favor and grace and guidance in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is an amazing, an amazing truth. And yet there is such a weight upon it when we preach it. No man can come to me except unless the Father draw him. To this we turn as we preach the gospel here in Coleman. This, to this we turn every time we pass out a gospel tract. To this we turn every time we send leaflets out in mails, which we're going to do again quickly because we had such a good response before. We, we need to have this as our foundation, that it's God that draws, it's God it's God, and all men that the Father teach will come to Christ. That's the confidence we have in the gospel. It's not in the sad state of the church. It's not in the wickedness of men. The world is just terrible. People won't want to go. There's a remarkable statement. The lady at the funeral home that runs it told me the other day when I went at visitation to see Betty and was talking to her family, she said, you know, 20 years ago, it's very few people who didn't know pastors or go to churches. She was talking about needing pastors to do funeral services. 
And she said an amazing statement. She said this. She said, today, nobody goes to church. But everybody wants a pastor when they die. It makes no difference if nobody goes to church. Let us preach the gospel. I was reading at Thessalonians this morning about Paul when he preached the gospel with much, <laughs> with much fighting and bitterness and arguments against him. Paul said, but we preached it boldly. We kept preaching it. God gave him grace and they kept preaching it. Oh, to preach the gospel nowadays, we must expect great persecution. We must expect great opposition. But preach we must and preach we will. Because God has sovereignly ordained it to be the calling of his election or of his elect out of sin. No man can come to me except the Father draw him, and all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me all I will no wise cast out. Oh, beloved, may God give us grace in our hearts for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we, may we pray fervently, always, consistently, that God would open up effectual doors and give us grace to preach the gospel to every creature grounded and founded in the doctrine of God's divine election because that's what's going to inspire us and help us to overcome all controversy, all opposition, all afflictions and persecutions for the gospel's sake. Paul said, I become all things to all men that I might save some. May God give us that heart and that mind. He said, but that sounds so contradictory. You had a logic and reason, but it's not biblically. It's not biblically. Let me tell you something. There's nothing greater than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And oh, I thank God for allowing me yesterday the opportunity to preach the gospel. Oh, I, I wish, I pray that I could... had a video that you could see the faces and countenances of people that sat in that assembly yesterday as we preached the gospel. And oh, how my heart was stirred and I was praying as I was preaching. God, please, I pray that you would draw them, that you would teach them, show them the things of Christ. May God be honored and glorified in the saving of souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I wish I could say I, I've done all that I can, but even that was far too insufficient for what this divine truth calls for. Lord, I'm I'm incapable of explaining it perfectly. I pray that the Holy Spirit would take all my weaknesses and insufficiencies, and I pray the Holy Spirit of God would take your word and write it upon the hearts of your children. Lord, that we would be inspired and we'd be encouraged to go out and preach the gospel, knowing that we have a sovereign God behind us, a sovereign God who's sending us forth. May we trust in that. And Father, I pray as we do preach the gospel, I pray that we'd never leave the shadows of Calvary. But we ourselves would constantly survey the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died. Oh God, that we might fall freshly anew in love with Christ. Thank you, dear Father, for drawing us to the Son. Thank you, dear Son, for washing and purging our sins. Thank you, Holy Spirit of God, for giving us a heart to know Christ. 
Lord, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified. And again, I ask that, Lord, you'd stir in the hearts of those people that heard the gospel yesterday. Give them no peace and rest, I pray. May the Spirit of God follow them, convicting them of their sins and their need of Christ. And Lord, again, we thank you for the time we had with Betty. And Lord, I pray that, Father, you'd help us to be encouraged by her faith. And Lord, I pray that you would just continue to move and guide our church as you see fit. May we humbly follow you, Father, and you alone. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.